This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, everyone, and thank you for joining us for the 468th episode of the Hollywood Reporters Awards Chatter Podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and I am recording this episode in front of an audience of students at Chapman University's Dodge College of Film and Media Arts, where I teach part-time. My guest today is a Mexican writer, director, producer, film editor, and composer who was described by Roger Ebert as unreasonably talented. He has directed seven feature films over a period of 22 years, 2000's Amores Peros, 2003's 21 Grams, 2006's Babel, 2010's Beautiful, 2014's Birdman, 2015's The Revenant, and 2022's Bardot, the last four of which he also co-wrote. He has personally won four Oscars, Best Picture, Best Director, and Best Original Screenplay for Birdman, and just a year later, Best Director for The Revenant, making him one of only three filmmakers who have ever won that high honor in back-to-back years, after John Ford and Joseph L. Mankiewicz. And he was also awarded an honorary Oscar for his 2017 virtual reality project, Carne y Arena. Few filmmakers have ever accumulated that much hardware from the Academy, and he's still only 59. Widely known as one of the Three Amigos, a trio of Mexico-born filmmakers who have risen to the top of the international film industry in the 21st century, the others being Alfonso Cuaron and Guillermo del Toro, three of his films have been chosen to represent Mexico in the Best International Feature Oscar race, each in a different decade. Amores Peros, which was nominated, Beautiful, which was nominated, and this season, Bardot, which might well be nominated. He has directed 10 performances to Oscar nominations as well, those given by Naomi Watts and Benicio Del Toro in 21 Grams, Adriana Barraza and Renko Kikuchi in Babel, Javier Bardem in Beautiful, Michael Keaton, Edward Norton, and Emma Stone in Birdman, and for The Revenant, Leonardo DiCaprio, who won Best Actor, and Tom Hardy. They each owe him thanks, as do we for making the trip up to Chapman to be with us today. And so, without further ado, would you please join me in welcoming Alejandro Gonzalez in Yari <laughs> Thank, Thank, Thank you. Welcome to Chapman. We are so thrilled to have you. And uh, always want to begin just right at the very beginning. For anyone who may not know, can you share where you were born and raised and what your parents did for a living? I born in Mexico City and raised in Mexico City, live in Mexico City until I was 36 years old. 
And your parents? My parents, uh, my father is from León, Guanajuato. My mother is Chilanga from Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And what did they What did they do? They were not in this business in any way. No, I'm the black sheep, I think. <laughs> I'm like, like the rare species. Uh, no, my father was a banker. Then he became kind of, a, he started selling fruits and vegetables in, in restaurants. Mm-hmm. And my mother was just like housewife. And you are the youngest of Seven? Or five. Five. Yeah, I have a brother, three sisters, and then me, five. the little okay. one. Um, now, I have heard this. there are false reports out there. Maybe this isn't true, but you weren't the most well-behaved kid. You might have been asked to leave school uh, at one point. And starting in your early 20s, you began experiencing, perhaps not coincidentally from all the rest of that, some severe anxiety attacks, panic attacks that really continued for years. What do you think all that was about? Were you, what were you in terms of your behavior and your physicality, what were you reacting to? It's, it's hard to know. I have been in therapy for 35 years and uh, meditating in the last 10. I think it has to do a lot with uh, a lot of suppressed emotional issues, things that I think I was raised Catholic, very conservative, I think my instinct and my spirit and my thoughts were maybe not fitting with where I was kind of the environment. So I think it has to do a lot with those kind of things. We cannot, uh, you know, over um, underestimate the, the subconscious mind. So I think the, 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 actually the panic attacks started when I smoked a pot of marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> you are familiar with that, I guess. Right. And uh, something happened that, uh, you know, I used to, 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 to smoke hashish and marijuana and I was always kind of cool and laughing. But that day, suddenly three friends of us, uh, so, something was in that. <laughs> and it was just really uh, triggering me an incredible paranoid state. Like 10 hours, they have to take me to the hospital because I thought that somebody will kill me in the in shower, wow. kind of Hitchcock kind of thing. Wow. So it was really scary. And then I started developing this without smoking marijuana. Right. Since, <laughs> since, since then I stopped doing right. any drugs. Right. I'm right. super coward with drugs because I know my brain is already screwed. So I don't want to screw it more. <laughs> but I think it has to do with that trigger. And then it took me like five, six years. And I, you know, at that time, mental health was not even a word. Mm-hmm. And to say that you are paranoid or, 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 or scared or panic was actually not you know, in that society at that time. So I had to keep for myself. Well, was it, was it pos- possible that part of it also, I read from an unusually early age, you're reading about existential matters and things that might cause anyone, let alone a teenager, to feel some anxiety. I, I agree. I think I think uh, existentialism and Sartre and all these guys really, 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 uh, you know, I think was fantastic because they were not giving me answers, but only more questions and more questions and more kind of kind of a depressive, reflective state. And at some age, you have to compensate with some other kind of lectures to balance kind of different points of view. And uh, I think that's true. I think that that kind of thing. And the, the films that I attracted since I was a kid, the music that I hear always is kind of the scythe, the, the sad and the dark and the pain, you know, always attract me that kind of thing. So, you know, it was kind of a black hole that if you are not careful, you can get into this kind of thing. You know? Totally. Well, speaking of music, at the age of just 20, you wind up as the top 
DJ at the top radio station in Mexico City, WFM, with a three-hour show. I've got to ask you how that began and the role that music has played in your life. I've read you say that it's more important to you even than movies, music, and that, in fact, um, you say you can pinpoint the moment you wanted to make films for the first time to when you first heard The Dark Side of the Moon by Pink Floyd. So I guess, obviously, you know, music from that DJ point and maybe even earlier on was a huge part of your life. Yeah, I think that music uh, for me has been, was, I think that work, that job that I got and actually was kind of random. It's not that I was looking, Martin Hernandez, my sound designer, we were studying in the college as you, and he said, you know, they are, they are doing some, some test, test in this radio station. He went and he was rejected. Then I went and I was accepted. And then I, I, I fight for him. So we both get into this station and we have a three hour radio show hosts and we were picking our vinyl records, putting whatever we want and saying things between one song and the other. And we start creating, I start writing characters. He start producing them. And it was outrageous. They were political characters, kind of a very provocative things. And the, the reason people listened was not only because the music, because what happened between song and song. So it was a way for me to arrive and show my energy, my emotional state through. I was putting from classical music, from Led Zeppelin, from Pink Floyd, from Pat Metheny, jazz, whatever. So it was almost like a musical therapy that I was sharing with people. And that was a bless for me. And uh, so, and, and, and yes, I think uh, since I was very, very early, since I was 11 years old, as all of us, when, when I hear some great album of some, some, you know, especially at that time in the 70s, the concept albums, as it was jazz or Genesis or Pink Floyd, they were not, you know, just singles. They were really stories and moods and atmospheres that did, do not end or finish. They were, and for me, that was creating a kind of a, an inner story that when I was doing things, I was imagining myself, the soundtrack of my own life was those kind of things. So I could see images uh, about it very easily. Now, is that why I believe at your initiative, you wind up going to the, TV sister network of WFM, which would have been over at Televisa Channel 5, and basically making things with visuals for the first time. How did that all come about? And were you already thinking, all right, I want to make films, or was this just sort of step by step? It was step by step. With, uh, the, the, the radio station was called WFM 96.9. And um, uh, we, uh, we imagine a, a, a TV uh, commercial. And we wrote it and uh, a, a director, Tomas Farkas, which was a funny guy, he directed. And it was about radios and the camera arrived to a radio and the radio said, hi, my name is Alejandro. And then the camera pans and it was another radio and the radio said, hey, my name is Martin Hernandez. So the radios has characters. So it was a very stupid thing, but it was fun at that time. But the way he did it, I didn't like it. So anyway, by some reason I said, you know, I don't want to be kind of do, doing DJ you know, all my life. And I said, this is the opportunity for me to start playing with these provocative ideas in that. So I jumped very responsibly with no study behind <laughs> to start being in front of a camera, two actors and an idea. And that was, you know, I, I learned through a lot of mistakes, let me tell you. Now, at some point, I believe for Channel 5, you make a pilot, doesn't go beyond being a pilot. And at that point, is this the moment when at least the first of the two amigos of the, of the two 
two of the three amigos first connect. I heard it might have been then that you connect with Alfonso Cuaron. With Guillermo el Toro. Well, Alfonso Cuaron, yeah. I, I, I asked um, advice to Alfonso. He was doing here great expectations. He was already a big shot director in the in the in the in the Chateau Marmont, living there, <laughs> and I was just trying to do a TV series. I wrote with seven writers. I create a room where we uh, create with my partner Raúl Olvera. We create a concept that was very cool at that time. I'm talking 25 years ago, and it was called Detrás del Dinero, behind the money, and it was about a bill, a 100 of yeah, 100 bill that basically has the first episode was one hour with Miguel Bosé at that time was a big thing. So it was a bank robbery. The episode finish uh, uh, where somebody picked that bill and then we follow the life of that person. And then another, and, and that bill was traveling around the world. So we have the opportunity and flexibility to be changing genres, cultures, inviting actors and directors from all around the world. And, it's, and it was just following that who has that money and what is the use you do to that money? So it can be comedy, it can be drama, it can be thriller. And I did the first one. We we wrote with Pelayo Gutierrez, a friend of mine, was my producer, and I directed. That was my first attempt. And I remember that when I did that the first time, my goal and my measure was if I can just have one single moment of truth. So if I can do just one scene that really I said is not bad, then I will pursue a career. And according to me, maybe I lied myself. I said, yeah, there's one, <laughs> there's one scene that is very good. <laughs> and, and that was the beginning. And, and I fl flew here to talk to Alfonso. I sent him all my advertising commercials and he loved it. And he was super generous with and me. And the person who connected you was that Pelayo uh, Gutierrez? Yes, or? Pelayo Gutierrez. So that was you and Alfonso knowing each other. He's encouraging you. I think you still seem to have an understanding in your own mind that maybe you understand the, the sound and the visuals of, of making things or you're starting to, but there's another big ingredient that you have to learn more about, which are actors. And can you, as I said, when I introduced you, you know, obviously you figured it out because there's a lot of people who have done great performances for you uh, with, you know, in, in partnership with you. But in order to figure that out, who's Ludwig Margulis? Ludwig Margules was a theater, a Polish theater uh, director who lived in Mexico with the tradition of the Polish theater, which obviously after the war, basically they could not say nothing. And they, they become this tradition of the black theater, which was basically black canvas. No, they didn't have money to sets or fancy things. So they have to convey great dramatic things. In, in kind of the Ibsen tradition, like very, very profound human, you know, emotional things. And he was a master of kind of modern contemporary style of, of that kind of theater. And he was a wise man. Uh, so when I realized that I, as you said, didn't have the, the tools to really understand the whole canvas and thing, uh, even when I was, uh, we, we were very successful in our production company. We were having a lot of production. I decided to jump into a theater school and I was the oldest guy. It was only 20 or 17 years and I was like 10 years older than them. And I was studying uh, theater directing with Ludwig Margules for three years. And I was going three times a week. And it was kind of a little bit for me, like how you are doing that? But I knew that I was getting so much thing about that, that it was fantastic, you know? And you said that you mentioned your production company, this was Zeta Films that was going 
developing at the same time. You're uh, writing, directing, producing, editing a lot of commercials. So that, yes, on the, on the one hand, when you first made your feature directorial debut, you were 36, which is older than usual for a first film. But you'd had plenty of experience, not with filmmaking, but with all the ingredients of it by that point. Exactly. I think uh, Ludwig Margulis helped me a lot theoretically and opened me the curiosity to see a lot of theater, a lot of film, read a lot about film and, and work with some materials. There was another ingredient that was very important for me, which was a teacher here uh, that is called Judith Weston. And Judith Weston really was somebody who really helped me to download all that knowledge and with practical exercises to understand the language to the actors to communicate with the actor in the proper way. That was for me a key element. And it's true when I start um, doing Amores Perros, first of all, I did it with my family, which was basically uh, Brigitte Brock, Rodrigo Prieto, the DP, so all the production designer, the DP, we have been working so many years doing Bad commercials yeah. that we understand the language. And I was really uh, lucky because all the commercials that I did, most of the 90%, I wrote them, I direct them, and I edited. So in a way, it was kind of little short films that I was understanding what happened with that and what happened with that. So it, it was a good tool for me to learn. You know? Well, even the, the pilot that you mentioned where you're following the money, the currency all over the place and how it affects different people, there is something similar, I have to say, right, between that and those first three films that you made, Maurice Perros, uh, of course, the the first, 21 Grams, and then Babel, because again, it's this inter, how we're all interconnected, but I guess the key thing that changed or the, the collaboration between the uh, pilot and then those films is Guillermo Arriaga, this writer who I think had been a novelist up to that point, how do you guys connect and, and decide to start working together for those first three films? It was true again, Pelayo Gutierrez, which was uh, uh, my, but Pelayo was my first friend since I was a kid, four years old. We were sent to the, to the, to the, we were punished. Detention. And he, yeah. he and I were together and we found ourselves four years there. And then he, he became my producer. Uh, unfortunately, he passed away five years ago. So it was a big loss for me because we were partners in crime. So he was the one who connected me and introduced me to, to Guillermo. So we start working and developing Amores Perros. And the, originally, was it a, I guess I had read something like almost 11 shorts or something that became, well, how did, how did that first one, Amoris Paros, which basically, if anyone hasn't seen it, that's a mistake, get going, but um, basically about Mexico City and people from different socioeconomic backgrounds literally crashing together. Um, but the idea of that started in a different, how, did, how does it go from the short to that feature? It was funny because we were having an idea of kind of 11 vignettes or 12, I think it was 11 or 12 that uh, in Cine at that time, the government was giving some subsidized money. So we were trying to apply there and we were trying to get kind of um, this kind of feeling of, uh, you remember this thing, Wang Wang and uh, 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 Blue Smoke, what's the name, Blue Smoke, what's the name, uh, uh, you, you know what, I know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wayne One film. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, I think we were kind of inspired in a very simple event that in a way will trigger a lot of things. And at that time, it was little vignettes, little moments 
that in the middle of the house of somebody, somebody, there's uh, a fire in the city. So the discussion between a mother and a daughter suddenly was interrupted by a call. Somebody, what? A fire? So we went to another thing and there were two guys arrive, arriving to a stadium to, to see a concert and the guy forgot the ticket and it was this tension created between them and then people start going out and they were seeing something and you hear that there's a fire and then we went to another kind of little moment. So what I'm saying is, and we never saw the fire. You know, the, the fire was kind of a thing that is one, one is was creating a little event and all these stories in a world were, and we were developing that yeah. idea. Actually, it was like 11 people going to the fire and then it turns into one crash going to the people. Yes, yeah. But it was like implosion, explosion kind of exercise. But that, that's how I kind of remember it, it started the yeah. idea of that. You know? For Amore Sparrows, I think you were primarily looking at theater actors and however the person who comes out of that, who maybe most people know is Gael Garcia Bernal, who had basically, I know he'd been in an Oscar nominated short film, I think he might have been in a commercial of yours, but what? How does he wind up uh, as your discovery for that one? I, especially, uh, it's funny because that was this campaign WFM that he was basically arriving the casting. I like his face a lot, and he was just sitting in a bath, just nothing, and then the camera was just thirty seconds, just without movement. And there, there was a zoom in, a horrible zoom in, deliberately like to the face. <laughs> and then he just looked at and then rook. And then in the wall was written like handwriting WFM 969. <laughs> and the slogan was something stupid like, when you are lonely, WFM. So something like that, you know what I mean? But, but I remember that I saw his face. And when I was watching the monitor with Rodrigo, I said, what? I love the face of this guy. And his eyes looked like purple. And it reminds me like... There was something very beautiful about his kind of a wolf kind of thing. And it was like a John Alain Delon, you yeah, know, yeah, there was yeah. kind of uh, something. Where, and I said, I love the face. I said, if I do a film with John Guy, I will do a film with him. Right. Two years later, I called him and he was in London. And then the, the rest of the story, he, in order for him to come, we had to invent a weird Mexican disease and we have to... We have to make a lie to the university for them allowing him to stay in Mexico three months. That's that great. He has a, a, we call it like a Mexican diarrhea or something. <laughs> it was a weird thing, really. And, and, and I have an uncle who, who was partnering in crime who said, I think the only thing that I can say, so he invented this kind of weird virus and he, he, he allowed me to do that. That's know? great. So in a year that there were, I believe there were 16 films that came out of Mexico, 15 of them are funded by the government with kind of not much support you guys were able to privately finance this for, I think about 2.2 million US. And it clearly, there's, it, was, it was coming together beautifully, but I believe somehow the third amigo needed to enter the picture here. How do you come to meet Guillermo del Toro? It was through a common friend, Antonio Rutia, which is a very good friend of mine. And he knew it, they were from Guadalajara both. So I have this, cut of three hours, 50 minutes or something like that. And I was struggling. I edited myself in my house, in the studio, and it was a very long process. And uh, so he saw it. 
He called me at 6 a.m. He started telling me, you know, I love your film. It's incredible. It's a masterpiece. But you should take out the second story. I said, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah, the, the, the middle story you should take out. Guillermo is very radical. I said, are you crazy? Yeah, blah, blah, blah. I said, so we start discussing until I said, well, if, if you are so sure about it, you should come and see what is the problem because it's very easy to say, take it out. Anyway, like literally next day, he ring my son. He was there. He ate all the food in my house and he stayed for for three days. And it was disgusting and it was beautiful. The 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 legend, uh, he, he wants to say that he took out 20 minutes. I said that is 7 to 11. Anyway, it doesn't matter. I think his presence and his wisdom and his point of view really helped me a lot to clarify the vision and it was a great way to meet each other yeah. with such a generous spirit so how you travel to another place five hours from your home to stay in the house of somebody that you don't know and help somebody to get the best film ever so i mean that's that speak about the heart of guillermo you know? totally now i'm going to ask this question only because it relates to bardo which we'll come to but who is amaris peros dedicated to amaris peros is dedicated to luciano to, uh, as, a, as a son that my wife and I lost. And so this was, you know, the first film of yours goes out to the world. New York Times piece at the time called it, quote, the most ambitious and dazzling movie to emerge from, Let from Latin America in three decades, close quote, wound up with an Oscar nomination for Best Foreign Language Film, the first Mexican film to be nominated since Letters from Marussia 25 years earlier. You were, again, just 36. And yet... I guess in a sign of pre-internet, pre-internationalization, you're still living in Mexico. I don't know that, it sounds like you didn't fully, it didn't totally change your life right away, right? Not necessarily, not necessarily. Uh, I think the, the fact, the only thing that really happened is that I took the chance to really explore things that my country could not provide me at that time. I think Chivo and Alfonso and Guillermo and I, people like Rodrigo Prieto, at that time, as you said, Mexico was producing only seven to eight films a year. So there was not an industry, there was no way to really do a, a career. And um, so, um, and I have been an adventurer, or, or adventurer all my life. I want to be challenged. I, I get kind of bored very easily. So I, I said, well, let's take an opportunity. And I remember I was in Mexico and I received a call and it was, um, Hi, who is this? Uh, Sean. Who's Sean? Sean Penn. I said, hi, come on. I said, yeah, I'm Sean Penn. So he called me just to say how much he loved Amores Perros. And he went on and on and he said, I hope that we can work together. And I said, that's fantastic. I, mean, I, I love Sean as an actor. And, uh, and we were developing at that time 21 grams in Mexico. It, we were, uh, it was supposed to happen in Mexico. And then I saw an opportunity because the character of Vinicio del Toro to put that character, which is a religious fan in the south of the United States, to work with Sean was an opportunity and explore myself in another territory, in another language, in another planet, which is the United States, that I have never lived. And I decided to take the chance because the first reason that I told you that I became a public figure, the, the kidnappings, my mother was all the... Some, some assault, they broke their mouth. My father was kidnapped for one day. I was very kind of visible. And um, uh, Eliseo and Maria, my son and daughter, were very small. And it was very hard to concentrate when you were thinking I can be kind of in, in, in this position. So all these reasons make me take the chance and said, let's, let's go to live one year in California. 
and 21 years later yeah. I'm here. <laughs> so <laughs> that was again, kind of what the film is about. Exactly. Yeah. Again, what uh, what Bardell comes uh, comes back to that. But um, just to remind people, 21 Grams is 2003 when it comes out. Title is a reference to the weight that supposedly leaves the body when person dies, the weight of the perhaps the soul. Um, this film is dedicated to your wife with whom you, as you say, you, you guys, your whole family moves in September, 2001, which is an interesting time to be coming to America. Yes, okay. And I guess, you know, we should say first film in the English language, first time with internationally known stars, not just Sean Penn, but Naomi Watson, Benicio del Toro, the latter two of whom end up getting nominated for this. Um, you again, with Ariaga writing the script, which again is about interconnected storylines. And except the first time was in a city, now it's in the United States. We'll get to Babel in a moment about being around the world. But I guess, was it purely coincidental that you're again doing kind of interconnected stories that, or was that something that you had found really interesting and wanted to revisit? Yeah, I think naturally it came to that possibility to do a kind of a structural exercise of 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 people getting interconnected by an event in a very different kind of way. Uh, but yes, it was it happened to be like that that we explore it, and uh, and after that, I think uh, you know we thought that to do a triptych will be the the way to finish that exploration, to go even further by having, you know, stories that even people do, do not, do never seen each other and whose life are changed forever with something that they do in another continent, actually. So it was the extreme <laughs> exploration of a structure in cinema that it was an exercise. And that was it, you know, that was the end of it. But I think it's good to go to the end of some exercise and to explore the possibilities, even if you fail, it's better to not attempt it, you know? Totally, and and Babel, which, as you mentioned, where we're talking about different continents, how a stray bullet can affect people's lives in all around the world. Um, people call the three films that you and Ariaga did together the death trilogy. I know that's not you, that's not your term, but um, what do you make of that? Well, I think, you know, the three, the thing is that those three films has to do, yes, I think there's an exploration about loss and uh, death, obviously, is included. And, um, but fatherhood, you know, I think in all the stories, in each of them, you know, there's a father figure, you know, uh, if you analyze uh, Amores Perros, there's the... Uh, the, the 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 revolution fighter, the the El Chivo in, in Amores Perros, the, the father that is that is absence, the father that got divorced in the middle of the story, Gael Garcia that doesn't have a father figure. Um, you know, in Twenty One Grams is is kind of the the the, the same with uh, the father and the kids that are lost. And so, if you analyze and if you analyze every story of Babel, it's about that. It's about fathers and sons. So that that, that I think much more as a pattern that is much more profound than just to say, ah, oh, it's about death. Right. I mean, it's like okay. And it's interesting though because you talk about parent child, you know, being a, a recurring theme through those three. But I think it's actually through every single one of your films. And I haven't done it this deliberately, by the way. That's what I wanted to ask you. Yeah, just, just 
it, un- it happened. Yeah. It, it happened that suddenly I see, and I, if I could see a pattern, but it's something that I didn't plan, said, oh, at 36 years, I'm going to do seven films about father. Right, right. <laughs> you know, nobody nobody thinks like that. Right. Well, I think. I mean, well, maybe, were, maybe there's people that are very strategic. I'm not. So, I mean, with I guess we'll come to some of those others like Beautiful, which might, in that case, is dedicated to your father, who was going through a difficult time like the character. But I guess the, if, if you, I know you're saying it wasn't conscious while you were doing, while you're making these films that are about parent child relationships, but in hindsight, is there, is there any rhyme or reason for why that might be something you keep coming back to? I think that there's a very kind of inevitable, I mean, we can have uh, kids or not, but we, inevitable are son of somebody. And I think that defines you, who you are son of, you know? I think we all come from a father and a mother, even if we don't know them, or our relation is not good or bad, whatever. But it's inevitable that we are just a branch of a very profound tree. And even from our grandfather, you want to go deeper, you can go deeper ancestrally. But I think that in a way, it's destiny at some point. Or you can go through it in a different way, but it's a very interesting uh, kind of thing. And then if you happen to have a son, as I have been lucky to have, and a daughter, which my son is We here. should say, let's get, get, say hello to... Uh, Eliseo, my son is here. Okay. Listening, so Eliseo, <laughs> I, have been, <laughs> I have been lucky to have Eliseo and Maria. Suddenly, uh, you are too young maybe to understand what I'm saying, but uh, uh, then you, when you will be parents, you are trapped in a mirror. So you go up and you see your parents, and then you look down and you see your kids, and then you are in a sandwich. That is a very interesting reflection of things that you have been a tradition one, things that you want to escape, things that you don't want to do, and you end up repeating things, patterns. So I mean, it's a very, there is no recipe. There is no way that you will do it right impossible you always will screw something and 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 that i think is the 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 biggest challenge in in every way as a human experience i think in my point of view and i'll just note one other thing that that you've said about babel is that it was partly inspired by the fact that the war in iraq was just starting at that point right i think there was just a lot of thinking correct me if i'm wrong about just you know how the global implications of going into another country as well in Babel, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, I think it was kind of the misunderstanding. You know, we were living in this world, it was 2005, so it was all the, all the Sept- after September 11 thing that everybody was accusing the Muslim world and all the prejudice, which unfortunately we are still in that period and I think even deeper than that. So it was kind of the prejudice and misinformation and all these not rational kind of perceptions we have of each other can really affect the whole thing, you know, the ignorance. That season when Babel was on the award circuit uh, 16 years ago was kind of amazing because it wasn't just you with Babel. It was also Guillermo del Toro with Pan's Labyrinth and Alfonso Cuaron with Children of Men. And so it was the first kind of realization for a lot of people that the Mexicans are coming. The three amigos are really going to be a big part of this industry. And they certainly have been since then. In fact, I have a stat, which I just need to, this is a good time to bring it out. Pretty amazing that there's a period of two times in four years when 
one of the three amigos won, won the best picture Oscar. One of their films won the best picture Oscar and a period of five times in six years when one of you guys won the best director Oscar. This is like incredible statistic. What, you know, and this was sort of the beginning of people realizing this new era I think had begun, but it leads into what I think was also kind of a difficult period for you. I, I, from what I understand around beautiful, which is a story of this mid-level criminal who has two young kids, uh, underworld figure, I should say, has two young kids and learns he has a terminal diagnosis. At the time that this was happening, I believe that it was the same time that your own father was facing the same kind of diagnosis. And I wonder, again, just coincidence or did that inspire the film? No, I think it came as, as I was doing the film, it happened because I started developing that film earlier. And then my father started struggle with old age and, and cancer. And I was just seeing my father who has been always kind of a very strong and beautiful person, how, how that kind of period start kind of dimmed down. And I was just trying to empathize with that. So uh, I think it was kind of suddenly a sink of life put you in that kind of thing. And then my interest was to about talking about that when you are need to start thinking of leaving things, you know, to, to start detach from the most vital and, and primal things and what you do, because we all will go through that inevitably. <laughs> I think fatherhood, uh, to be a son, uh, to die, those two things in my film are the ones that nobody right, you can right. be a Democrat, a Republican or whatever. Those two things we all are together. Right. And I think those are, those, those are the things that I think obsess me more uh, because there's no negotiation with that. And, uh, and the other thing is I was observing to this incredible uh, uh, the phenomenon of Barcelona, which is such a beautiful city. When I went, I went to the, to the margins of the city and I saw these Chinese and all these uh, black African communities being completely abandoned. <laughs> I mean, treated that, you know, in this first world kind of uh, uh, continent, which prides themselves of many things. And I, I, I was starting to see this disparate kind of differences of that and nobody really talking about it. So the film is a little bit about migration to you. Sure. And it was different than any of the films you'd made up to that point, because first of all, this is the first one that you and Ariaga did not write together. It's also the first one that's a single story, a linear story. And it's at a moment when you're coming off your most, most commercially successful movie, Babel, you probably had more opportunity to do whatever you want and you decide to do uh, go back to a principally spanish language uh film with javier bardem and i think the story of just you know you guys coming together it's it's i believe it's it all dates back to the same night where you actually met sean which would be the night that Unfortunately, Amores Peros was not recognized at the Oscars. Javier's performance in Before Night Falls was not recognized at the Oscars. Sean Penn's performance, I think it would have been in Sweden Low Down or one of these, was not recognized at the Oscars. So you guys go out drinking and it ends up resulting in first 21 grams and then years later, beautiful. But I guess just you and Javier, that's a that was an interesting collaboration. Did 
brought great out. We were the three of losers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the three stooges right. losers. Uh, no, I think it was, uh, it's an interesting thing that you said that, yes, because after Babel, um, I wanted to, that, I, I think another pattern, if I, I can see it now, it's immigration. Because Adriana Barras in Babel is about that. It's about the double nature and then in in, 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 in Beautiful and then in Carne Arena and yeah. then here. So uh, immigration, if you want death or fatherhood is maybe the three things <laughs> that, that in a way has impregnated right, with no uh, stridey, but it has to be, they are per themes that are permeated no matter what. Mm -hmm. And then some, my psychiatrist or my, my psychologist will have to explain you why <laughs> or what, I'm not. But... Uh, but uh, I think that is interesting that you mentioned that I wanted to do a film in Spanish because suddenly I was really going into this very difficult thing. After Babel, I felt exhausted of two things. One is of, of the structure thing. It was a little bit now boring for me. So it was like too much. And, um, and I understood it very well, how it works, the mechanic, the hook here, blah, blah, blah. And then I said, how it will feel to make a film about just one person? So like a linear chronological story that's scary for me because when you do structured things in a way you can easily navigate and it's easy to distract people with narrative tricks you know narrative in a way has a lot of tricks that are easy to learn and uh, for me suddenly a linear story was like oh my god now you have to sustain a congruent point of view during the whole thing without possibilities to be tricking things and then, uh, because I have been shooting around the world in Morocco and Japan and United States with different crews, different cultures, different unions, it was so exhausting. I mean, literally, because, you know, I did, I, uh, even actually when I did 21 grams, it was the first time that I was speaking English so long. And the, the English requires the vocal cords to move differently. I have to have surgery because I have a novel in, in a vocal cord. Oh the doctor told me is because you are forcing your things because I was like talking, you know, you, you yeah, guys yeah. talk a little bit higher yeah, than yeah, yeah. <laughs> so so i was trying to accommodate myself to these cultures and all that thing and i said i want to do a film in spanish and have spanish food right <laughs> and uh, you know so anyway it was almost it was a family uh, that was a strategically a family adventure that my wife and i said okay let's try to go and live in europe in our language and try to really just become a little closer to our nature and identity and I took the chance to write that in there to live with my family there. So it was a, a, the, 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 the film in a way adapt to my need as a family man. And that was kind of the reason in a way that was the deep reason. You know? And still not an easy time, even though you were doing what you wanted to do, right? Because first of all, this is happening just as the global economy goes off the cliff in 2008 is when you guys are starting to work on this. Again, your your father's sick. You now finish this movie, it goes to Cannes, Javier wins Best Actor, and yet there was still a great struggle to find a US distributor for this movie. Eventually winds up with Roadside, but you know, it's like nothing was easy, it seems like at that time. And in fact, it seems like it threw you into a little bit of a funk that maybe the next film, Birdman, was a response to. Well, the film came and um, it was a very, you know, it's a, it's a very intense film. And uh, 
in Canada time, uh, I think they changed the rule because it was very cruel. But uh, in the you, you have normally in Cannes your presentation at 7 p.m., the red carpet in the Palais, and uh, and then uh, the, the press see the film in the morning. But the thing is that suddenly when we wake up, the reviews were so bad. <laughs> so, I mean, it was, they killed the movie. So, I mean, they hate it. And uh, and only you are with these kind of interviews and all that, and is and then you have to go to the premiere to celebrate the thing. But when you know, so all the stu the studios really drop the film, and we have to find a way to be distributed. And it was uh, it was it it was what it was. So, I mean, it, it it happened. When you make a film, you have to understand this is an industry, guys, that will break your heart many times. So you better be prepared. Don't, it's not easy. There is no recipes. What we do is very risky. You know, there is risks involved. It can happen, cannot, can connect. And, and there is nothing you can do to control it. Nothing. You can just put your heart. That's it. And that happened. So it, the film, in a way, wasn't to this kind of thermal thing. And, you know, fortunately, Javier won in Cannes and it was nominated and all that. But, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a tough film for some people. You know? And it was not, and when you say nominated, the... Javier for best for best actor, which very few performances not in the English language have been nominated in that category. Also for best foreign language film, but you were it seems like in a bit of a funk for a while after that, right? There's um, creative frustration and doubt and things that um, some inner demons. It sounds like which you came to associate with. A birdman, right? Like a guy that's sort of hovering over you saying, you're not good enough. You're not this, right? This is, this is, it was not a accident that birdman, I guess the intention was actually to do the revenant first after beautiful, right? But Leo was doing Wolf of Wall Street for Scorsese. So now birdman comes to the forefront and talk about the mindset that you're in as that, as you start working on that, um, nearing your 50th birthday, just feels like almost like coming out of a bit of a midlife crisis. Absolutely. A lot of things was going on, but in a very, I will say, very growing, transformative period of my life, which I really appreciated. I, I do not see this period as, as a in dramatic period of a crisis that people would like. Actually, it was like when you allow yourself to surrender to circumstances and think, okay, and I start developing Revenant. I start scouting Revenant. They want me to do it by a certain amount of money that I knew that I was not able to do it because of that money. Thankfully, I reject, reject. They were trying to push me. Right. And if I will not be maybe old enough to know, I will be a young filmmaker. I say, yes, and it will be a piece of shit. <laughs> and... Uh, and then, and then Leo was attached to um, to Martin Scorsese film. He wanted to make the film, but he said, "Come on, wait me." I know it was Baz Luhrmann. I think it was Baz. Luhrmann. Oh, was he doing Cat? Uh, not Catsby at that point. I think it was Baz Luhrmann. I don't remember, but he was doing one of these. And I said, "Come on, wait me one year." And I said, "Okay, it's fine." I didn't want him to do something. And, and obviously we have to start shooting in December. The, the seasons were very important. We cannot just do the film like that. So I said, okay, stop, hold there. And I was relieved because the budget was not there, blah, blah, blah. And it happened that with my friend, uh, uh, Antonio Rutia, who introduced me to Guillermo, um, we, we have been you know, sharing some books and some thoughts and things. Anyway, I end up going to this 
um, retreat meditation in Bordeaux in France with Thich Nhat Hanh. And I think that was a game changer for me. I mean, I think it was 21 days of silence and retreat. And suddenly I, in a way, was exposed for the first time in the practice of meditation. And it was a very challenging kind of exercise. But then it was like a huge thing. And then it triggers me the curiosity to keep going and pursuing and practicing. It's not like science. It's just practice and just obviously readings. And suddenly all my thought, another thing, it, I changed my understanding of so many things. All my Christian, Catholic understanding, Western, rational, uh, control freak uh, thing. Suddenly it was challenge. And, uh, and I was, since then, in the retreat, I remember uh, trying to convert what I was feeling excitedly and terrifying about ego, about this way that meditation practice tell you, which is, which meditation just means to be aware of the voice, our co-pilot that is all the time talking to us. And the people that doesn't think that they have their voice <laughs> is because they have become that voice. Right. <laughs> but if you understand that your thoughts is not you and suddenly you are having these random thoughts and suddenly in one second you will be thinking about your daughter and something or you will be thinking about your father, then oh my, I left my kiss in the car, all these things. And, and I wanted to make a film. I didn't know how. But I thought it would be a great theme to put together. Con uh, in that case, cons I arrived to a concept idea that I didn't have one, I didn't have a sense how to do it, but I knew that I wanted to approach that concept in cinema. And that, that's how, I think that what triggered the whole thing, which is what I'm saying is it was a growing, transformative, lucky moment for me to not having been in this Hollywood shit of make one every year, right. be famous <laughs> and do the Marvel one, and then my house in blah, blah, blah. Just, I, I'm not that guy. Right, right. I, I like life better than cinema. So right. I, think, I, think, I think it's a tiny bit more interesting. Right. <laughs> and it is interesting because you're the other of the three amigos have done the sort of studio movie. Guillermo did Blade Two. Alfonso did a Harry Potter. And I know that you guys have talked about that. Guillermo said, I guess you guys stopped talking for a few months because you gave him so much shit about wasting his time doing Blade Two. But uh, you've never been willing to do something you weren't totally interested in doing, right? I can't, I can't. And I'm not saying this from the virtuosity kind of guy that, no, it's, I can't. I, I really, when I do a film, I gave, I give myself. I, I became another person. Is I go into a trance kind of thing. I, I really give myself. And if I'm not completely 100 in, in soul, in heart, in, in intellectually, spiritually, mentally, I think for me, it's not a job. It's not a craft. It's not, ah, it's fun. For me, it's not fun, unfortunately. I mean, it's not a fun thing. I, I'm gonna, it's very challenging. It's very demanding intellectually, physically. You have a lot of responsibilities, uh, uh, financing. So it's a huge kind of castle that you create in a couple of months or, or a year. And so I better be kind of very convinced about something that comes from me. And I really believe, and I'm telling you these guys, that I think the films that I really think that is worth to do is the ones that nobody can do but you. Because there's scripts, there's things there, and there's people for hire, and there's craftsmanship, and that's good. There's like carpenters, and carpenters can do tables and things. But the chair or that table that you will design, that you dream with the legs like this, 
That's the one that nobody will do but you. So I think if you have the chance to do that, those are the ones that really the, the world need that. And, th and that's certainly uh, clearly, as we've heard, why Birdman was so personal. But let's just note, you'd never made a comedy before. People weren't lining up to um, financially support this. I think you it was a struggle to raise the money. Ends up being $18 million, which was only enough for a 19-day shoot. So everybody's working at less than they normally work. You still get a great group of people together, including Michael Keaton, which I've got to ask you about because he, of course, had played Batman in a, a superhero early superhero movie and then had sort of faded from the scene a little bit. And you go to him about playing this one-time superhero who had sort of faded from the scene a little bit. What was his reaction when you first uh, offered him the part? He said, are you joking with me? I said, no, I'm not joking with you. <laughs> this is true. And uh, I was very respectful for him because I didn't want him to feel that I was doing a joke or something. I just told him, you know, you, you know from experience about how to become this kind of popular hero thing, but you are a great actor because he's a great actor. And suddenly he kind of disappeared. He's such an incredible guy because he has a ranch in Montana and he has his life. He don't care about the Hollywood shit. You know what I mean? So he has disappeared, not by only other reasons, just because he loved his life. But uh, anyway, he, he just got it. And, and we, we, we just understood exactly what we were trying to do. It was amazing. And you've, you've joked about, you cast Edward Norton to basically play Edward Norton's reputation of being a little bit of a it, 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 difficult it, guy. <laughs> Edward, Edward was having a, 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 his daughter in New York. I was doing casting. He has the daughter at 3 a.m. And he went to meet me at 7 a.m. in my hotel. I was flying at 9. And he said, please, I need to do this part. I know this guy very well. <laughs> <laughs> because obviously he's, a, you know, he's that. Yeah. And he was so, so uh, passionate. And I love Edward, but I never thought it like, you know, I was dealing with other possibilities. He was one of them, but he was so passionate and I gave it. And I know you will see this, this, this anecdote that is funny. There's a scene in Birdman where Michael Keaton arrived to the theater and he started explaining the staging of that scene. So he started, well, you know, you can go there. So you can come here and you can do that. And Norton start to, 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 to challenge him, to question, but what about here? Why here? What about the way we do the camera here? So suddenly the actors start directing the director of the theater. That's what the scene is about, that how this prick start taking over <laughs> of the thing. So when I was blocking the scene with them, you know, uh, I was explaining how I'm gonna shoot it. Edward, <laughs> oh yeah, Alejandro, but what about if I do that? I said, okay, and what about that? And suddenly seven times, I started laughing and Michael and I were just looking at each other and I said, do you realize what? I said, you are doing exactly what yeah. the fucking character is doing in the film. <laughs> oh shit, oh shit, right. oh shit. Anyway, I, I said, that's why it's a great casting because right. he was exactly the right person to cast. You know, anyway, it was. Um, well, and then the, the other person in that who I have to quickly ask you about, I guess, well, Naomi's back after you'd done 21. Grimms, but Emma Stone, who has since then gone on to do so many other great things as well. But I mean, I wondered, she is often shot. This is your first time working with Chivo, right? Yeah. Uh, as your cinematographer who won three Oscars in a row, like it's unbelievable. But, but with the way you guys shot Emma, who has unusually large eyes, but it often was, to me, it was like a bird because the eye you're, you know, was looking, is that just 
projecting or was there some thought to that? It's just just when we put the camera on her, she's magic. So she has this profound and funny and reliable and I don't know. It's, uh, she can make you laugh. She can make you cry. She's fragile. She can be a prick. I mean, she's old. I mean, it's just MSI that is amazing. It's, right. uh, it was it was amazing to work with her. And and the thing is that we were working in this, as you said. You know, we did this film. I I spent you know rewarded all these nominations and all this shit. You know, I went back to uh, have to ask money for two years. Nobody believed in the concept. And then when I finally I got financed by stitches everywhere. Uh, with no confidence of nobody actually, nobody. Everybody was like, these guys, let's just give it a chance just to see. I shoot the film in 19 days, which is crazy. I have never shot a film like that and very complicated fucking film. <laughs> and uh, and even, uh, so what I'm saying is this 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 job that we do is crazy because, and, and, and by the way, we all did, I didn't do one sentence. So in Amores Perros, I didn't went, I didn't got one cent. I put money to finish the film. And in Birdman, I just got like, I mean, I, I got what, what a waiter do in two years. I mean, <laughs> literally, I mean, there was no money for anybody. After, it was my fourth film, after nominations, after shit. That's the job we are doing. So, I mean, there is no guarantee. There is no like a, like a ladder, like a, no. You go here, the next day you are here. Then they elevate you, then they speed you. They, it doesn't matter. So, I mean, it, it, the thing is to really do what, that's what I'm saying. The only thing that really worked is to do what you need to do and say what you want to say the way you want to say it. Without that, honestly, it doesn't work. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You did it certainly the way you wanted to do it, but you didn't make it easy on yourself because I want to ask you, why did you feel it was essential to shoot that movie like it was a long single shot? And then also um, there's a rhythm there with the drums and Antonio Sanchez and all of the the, the beat, which um, I guess even the rehearsals were the music was playing because it was so much about the rhythm, which you have said is the one thing that you cannot be a filmmaker without really understanding rhythm. So wh just talk about the, cause again, Chivo wins the Oscar because it's such a mind blowing thing that you guys together could make a, mo a full movie that essentially looks like, and almost was one in an uninterrupted shot. Why would you make your life that difficult? It's que I think it's very important to talk about cinema from a very different perspective. Uh, people feel that is uh, disconnected form and substance. And I think form is substance. What I'm saying is if I'm talking about ego and I'm talking about an interior voice of a character, I knew that I need to be inside his point of view. I, I, I wanted to be him or make audiences feel himself and navigate with him to make the audience feels what he feels. And because this was a mental, immaterial voice, how you do that? I, I could not do that objectively. 
I, I, the only way is to really become Michael Keaton and see what he's seen. See, you know, so I knew that it was not like a fancy uh, uh, gadget of visually talented technical thing. I hate that. I try always Chi and I were trying to hide things that people would say. Always when we try, when we could, even when it was a very kind of flashy way, because obviously, but when we could, we always try to not make things very spectacular. You Just to always hide. My goal was that the people didn't feel that it was one take. And I was very happy when some people say, I was 25 minutes in it and suddenly I start feeling something and I realized that you haven't caught. And I said, that's exactly what I want. I didn't want the people to say, but then obviously the, 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 the accusations came saying, oh, this is just a gadget. No, this is not a gadget. This is, this is called form and substance. The form is talking and it's informing what the substance is about. And that was the decision. And then obviously the, 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 because I didn't have a cut and comedy is supposedly made in cuts, right? That's, that's basically the, the blood of a comedy is cutting, the, the, the fast pace, the thing. A guy says something and then you cut obviously to the other guy receiving the joke. And I have this anecdote that I went to have lunch with Mike Nichols. Yeah. And Mike Nichols told me, the king of comedy, you know, I very naively went to have two weeks before we start shooting. And Mike Nichols, when I told him the concept and I said, Mike, I'm going to do this with these actors, with this uh, uh, thing, with music. He was just taking the olives, <laughs> the martini, and he was listening. And then he just leave his olive and said, Alejandro, you are running in disaster. He, he was like, this is a disastrous thing. Said, well, my wife. Your actors are not comedy actors. Edward Norton doesn't make me laugh. He's a blah, blah. I can, I can recommend you this and this and this. They, they are not theater actors. Alejandro, a comedy is made of edit. And he was absolutely right. So he was absolutely right. I mean, I was terrified. Right. And he said, you should stop now. This is a disaster. <laughs> and I was, you know, one week to start shooting, I was going to a rehearsal. I went from the St. James Theater to have lunch with him two blocks. And then I walked back in New York by myself. And I was, Regan Thompson, and said, you are a fucking idiot. You're a fucking idiot. I know it. You screw yourself. <laughs> but honestly, it was not. The reality is that when he was telling me that, there was this voice that was telling me, you should slap this guy. <laughs> and the other one said, this is the great master. This guy is putting you an alert and a warning that you should be very careful because what you are doing is very dangerous. And he's right. He's a fucking master. He's <laughs> telling you, you are breaking the rules, blah, blah. And we give a hug to him uh, at the end. Um, and uh, I went to the theater and I remember that Edward Norton said, how it was with, my they were very like, what Michael Nichols said. I said, oh, fantastic. He's very excited. <laughs> fantastic. He's so excited about it. And I pretend not to have nothing, but right. honestly, that put me in a red alert. And I think he made me make my job a little bit more like, I have to be fucking proving this guy that he's wrong. <laughs> and then we released the film and I never saw Mike Nichols again. He died. Mm -hmm. And then Brian Lord told me, Cabron, he saw Birdman, I think, oh, he killed did. him. Ah. As a joke. Because Brian is his agent. Ah. They were very close. And in the moment that the film was released, actually two days later, he died. And then as a joke, he told me, maybe he saw it. Yeah, you killed him. And you killed Michael Nichols. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, it was a, a private joke between Brian that's and That's great. Well, in reality, of course, you guys took everybody by storm. You win. You personally, how many people, uh, very few people in history have gone to the Oscars and left with three statues in one night, picture, director, and screenplay, or in this case, original. Um, 
and you didn't have much time to celebrate because I think you go right back to working on The Revenant, which talk about you, if you made your life difficult with Birdman, Revenant, let's just tell people quickly, first of all, some people describe it as a Western. I know you say it's a pre-Western because there wasn't really a West Western at that point. Um, but let's just say, first time I believe you're adapting someone else's material into a into a script. Never had a budget anywhere near as big as this, $135 million. You're going to shoot it in natural light, which means only a few hours a day, maybe. You're going to do it in sequence. These are not things that normally, for if anyone doesn't know, right, These this does not normally happen. And I guess I just wonder, was part of the reason for even doing it that it was going to be so much of a endurance challenge? No, I, I think that, well, first of all, again, the, all the success with Birdman was so unexpected. You know, after a film that nobody cares, nobody give you money, we do it. I always thought that it would be this kind of weird experiment. And suddenly the people love it, blah, blah, and all this game, you never plan, you right. never expect it, and suddenly, boom. And when I was mixing uh, Birdman, before it became kind of a success at all, I was mixing it, and that film that I started preparing four years ago, it came to life again. I don't know how, um, but uh, it, now the budget was a little bit more reasonable. And uh, and I was, the first time is the first time, normally every film that I do took me two, three, four years. Because as I said, I need that space. I need to leave, to be inspired, to 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 to, to put something, a planted seed in something. If not, I mean, I'm not eating material of people. So something has to come from that space, from that growing, from what reflection. And I said, but sometimes to be three, four years between one film and another one, it's it's challenging because in a way. And I said, well, what about if I do one back to back? And I and I knew how to do that film. And again, form and substance. I knew how to do it when I was preparing. I was I was doing the storyboards of the shots and I knew again that I wanted to put people in the trapper's mind and not to do an objective film uh, like cut, cut, cut or a bear and the guy, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. No, I, I, I didn't want to use that language. I want to say how the fuck feels to be yeah. in the forest and be attacked by a fucking bear yeah. and and and. How is that? <laughs> I read books about survivors. There's only one book. 110 survivors were dead. We have uh, these ex experts about it. So I try to really put people in the skin of these guys and see the world as they were seen. So again, it was not like, ah, I'm going to do a fancy shot. And, I, and then we tried to do it in film and we were under the trees. And at 4 p.m. at that time, when there's snow in winter, there's no exposure. So you have to really push the material. So we couldn't find a way to do it in 65 millimeters in film because we have to push it and it was very grainy. The camera was heavy. So then we decided to do digital. But then we knew that if we stopped shooting at 4 uh, p.m. and the, the, the morning was at 7, it was short days, we will never make it. So the only way to extend it was to shoot in natural light. And there's another thing. We were shooting such in remote areas, so difficult to get in that we could not light the, the forest. There is no way to put lights in the forest. It's impossible. <laughs> it's so extended that you get, so it will be a shitty look if we were trying. So we said, we need to really, first of all, 
extend the days by having the digital thing and shoot with natural light to extend that in order that we can really create this sensation of the natural light and not the shitty kind of cinema light, which honestly looks like old style, like uh, how this guy looked the world, well, with natural light. Again, it was questions that were informing me about what is the experience that I wanted, what is what I want to say, and what is the best way to say what I want formally. And so all those formal decisions were made on that, not like just a fancy thing. Because I mean, I'm, I, I will not be an idiot to put no, that. No. It was the only way to do it. And uh, yeah, it was difficult. And almost then, nine months, right? Of, yeah, almost of nine out in, I mean, you guys have all said it was in some ways like a living yeah. hell, right? I mean- Yes and no. I think it was so exaggerated. All these traits are like, oh, hell. And oh, my God, come on. <laughs> we were in campers. We were hot. We were with great clothes. <laughs> so, I mean, yes, it was a lot of job. You have to write to. But honestly, I mean, what I'm saying, it's the, it, it, I was not Bernard Herzog shooting <laughs> Fitzcarraldo. No, we were in a much, much better right. kind of situation. Right. So it was tough. It was intense. It was difficult. A lot of planning is just took a lot of planning, a lot of work and exhausting. Of course, there, there's no re, there's no way not. And we'll just say just one year after Birdman was the big hit at the Oscars, Chivo, Leonardo DiCaprio, finally. And you, for the second year in a row in the director category, um, all recognized, which was pretty amazing. Just the last couple minutes from me, and then we'll close with a few student questions. But I I was one of the lucky people who got to see Carne Arena, your virtual reality um, production that when it was at LACMA, where it's six and a half minutes, you go in there, you put on the goggles and there's sand and everything. You are made to feel like you are a uh, migrant coming across the Mexican US border. And I know you've talked about a moment, you know, a few moments ago about, you know, your interest in immigration and, but the idea of doing it through virtual reality, not something I believe you'd ever done before. I don't even know. I mean, it, it, it played at Cannes, it was recognized, you were recognized with a honorary Oscar. So I guess it's, I guess, virtual reality is film. I, I'm just curious what you, what, why you went that way. After Revenant, I didn't want to touch a film camera in my life. <laughs> and uh, and uh, I, I got this idea. I, I got this idea of, of doing this kind of virtual reality. I, my first idea was to have people barefoot with sands. And I was so impressed by the stories of the immigrant crossing the, the things and how dangerous and how heartbreaking a story. So I had this idea. And the technology was arriving to a moment that it was there. And I talked to, 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 to Mary Parent and she said, yeah, let's go. So I talked to ILM and we start planning with Chivo and we start really getting into the thing. And I interviewed 500 immigrants more and I got together with them. Like it was a two years project and I create a kind of a theater uh, kind of uh, yeah, exercise compound where all of them really, I interview them, I select 14 of them, I cross over their stories of what really happened. We went to the desert, we shot their stories. They they, they leave again their own stories. It was so moving, so emotional. And then these immigrants were put with a mock-up, you know, and uh, and we did it in, a, in where Avatar is shot. So you see these, you know, immigrants redoing and living again that experience with their voices. It was super challenging. There was a moment that the technology was leaving us bad. bad. I mean, it was not looking great. 
And, uh, and I just hear the voices of them. And every time that they play, they were so honest. They were so into the moment. And I said, we need to do it as good as their voices. And honestly, I have to say that one year later with details and trying to understand the, the technology about how to make that work, we get to the point that I was very happy and very satisfied and very proud about that job. But again, I was about, in a way, Birdman triggering me as I first, the first three films, I was obsessed to explore structure in different ways. Birdman the trigger in me the possibility to talk to the audience or put the audience in somebody's shoes or somebody's mind. And I think uh, Carne y Arena was the extreme form of putting the people actually being the camera and being in 360 talk, I mean, walking with them. So that, that was the extreme exercise of subjectivity. But I will say that virtual reality is everything that film is not. So it's absolutely another medium. No, it doesn't have nothing to do. Film is a hole, you know, it's a door and there is this lock and you just go to this and you see that reality. And that's a little frame that is unidimensional. It's selected by somebody else, in this case, the director. And then all the other thing that is not that little frame, you have to, in a way, create it in your mind. And that's an interpretation and it's a whole very complex in a way, uh, intellectual processing the cinema, right? We see squares and when we, we create the other thing that we are not seeing. And, uh, and virtual reality is exactly the contrary. It's like going inside the hole and then you are in our world. Which Immersed, our yeah. world is virtual reality, but that's not cinema. Cinema is the magic of the intellectualization of the frame that you see very, very in it. So object. would you ever do virtual reality again? I would love to. I, would love, I, I just have to find the right thing to do it. Right. Because differently than cinema, not everything is for virtual reality. So you have to find, to curate the themes. It's not like, you cannot make a movie in virtual right, reality. Like that. It's not a CC, I think. So that was, that was Carne Arena 2017. Five years later, Bardo brings you back to Mexico for the first time for a film since 2000. And for people who may not know, uh, who are listening or whatever, can you share what the word Bardo means and why you chose that for the title rather than a, another word that I believe you considered, Limbo? Yeah, Limbo was original title, but there was two things. There was a film before that was called Limbo. And at the same time, Limbo is in the Catholic tradition is very, uh, is reduced to the kids that are kind of, that they die without being baptized. And they are in this state between, let's say they have not arrived to heaven, but they are in this between. So it was a little bit reduc reducting. And Bardo, which in a way has the same connotation, it's a little brother. Bardo, in a way, is this place in between after dying when something is dying and 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 is becoming, and it doesn't have to do necessarily only physically, but intellectually, spiritually, is when you are transforming and you are not in one place or the other, which is a way to grow. It's it's kind of a natural evolving state of being that when you are in the middle, and I love that. I love that because that's what I think the character is in, and the character Silverio. I want to just state a few things and then ask you. So, looks a lot like you, has the hair and the facial hair. Um, he's a very accomplished man in his profession, has been celebrated with the highest honor of his field, has tragically lost a child, had a father who 
for whatever his reasons, probably very well-meaning, withheld praise. He's caught between two countries in a sense. I mean, I have to ask, is he you? And if so, was it cathartic to release him to the rest of us? Yeah, I think that this film required uh, from me much more than any other film, meaning the, the material that this film is made is by very intimate and personal things that I have been going through. In a way, it required me uh, introspection, a lot of reflections, but it's not, um, how can I say it? Um, it's not a reflection of a reality. It's the reality of a reflection, if you understand what I'm saying. What I'm saying is the material that this film is made is not from factual events, which I don't care. I don't doubt about the chronological events. I, 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 I was concerned and I was interested in the emotional coherence and atmosphere of it, the truthness of that. And for doing that, I didn't care about the autobiographical facts that for me were not interested was the emotional things that were triggered by whatever events, some of them that happened, some of them the way I remember, but I'm not sure. And some of them that actually I fear they could have happened or they will happen in the past, in the middle and in the future. And I know that it sounds a little bit complicated, but maybe you are understanding what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that guy is not me, but I know him very well. And what I call this is an alter ego, what normally novelists do. You know, you, you take personal experience and things that you know well to talk about, which is the best you can offer to the world. And through a character, you, you build the character. And this is what I call an auto-fiction. It's an auto-fiction in a way. And that's why I try to instruct people from the beginning, but nobody understood or nobody wants to understand, which is false chronicle of a handful of truth. If there's something else that I should explain, it's false. But obviously it's a false chronicle, but there's some truth about it. And what I'm saying is all these truthful emotional acupuntural things that I found in myself as an immigrant, as a successful person, as a father, as somebody who has lost, has tough loves, loss and things that I have going through very deeply and very personal as millions of people that are very personal. I have a true conviction that in the moment that I fictionalize them, all this is fictionalized. I have never find my father in a bathroom being a little boy. <laughs> and I have never been in a train with ajolotes. And I, you know, what, I, what I'm saying is all this, what I'm saying is I have to betray truth with fiction because fiction is something that is, it, it could make us to find higher truths and in a way always reveals what, reality is hiding. Reality is very, very challenging. I mean, one single event can be challenged by your parents, by your brothers. And one single event means many different things for many different people that was in the same event. So you cannot say, ah, oh, this, is, this is something that happened. No. It's the elusive emotion, the elusive feeling, the elusive memory. And all this is made of memories that has been transforming in myself with the years, with my age that are starting not to be clear. 
And, and, and we made memories because that doesn't exist. It's a made of of our mind, accommodating to our emotional needs. So all this material is, is kind of made of all these things that is hard to describe that is not narrative. And I know that some people is pissed off about that because obviously it's irritating. But in a way, I think it's the way actually we live closer to this feeling than the narrative and the chronological and the rational way we think that we are living, but it's not. And and whatever people make of it, there are, there are visuals here that will stay with a viewer longer than uh, most movies will, whether it's the pile of corpses or the flooded subway or the um, even just the way you have the apartment structured, the kind of and the out in the desert and just stuff that I think it leaves a lot open to interpretation, which is great because makes you think but the one la the the one image of these many things that are sort of open to interpretation that I will just close by asking you about is we see a shadow flying over the desert at the beginning and the end is this a callback to birdman no no this is a dream that i have very recurrently i dream a lot flying and i'm always very dangerously flying very very close to the ground and it comes in waves of periods suddenly i have like 3 weeks that i dream every day or two, every two days and suddenly disappear for years. But it's something very recurrent and I knew that that was, that was a thing. And it's somebody that is trying to elevate and can't and then try it again and can't and is kind of trying to detach. And I think it has to do a lot with the feeling that with old age come, that you, you are trying to be lighter. You're trying to just, to just let it go, to try to really learn and elevate yourself in something. So. I knew that that was a thing and I was trying, this for me is a, this is the best thing I could have done for what I understand as cinema, which is not storytelling narrative thing, is images dissolving emotionally, fluidly in constant movement as life is constantly moving, as music, as a conceptual album of the 70s with no endings, dissolving with water, with sand, with memories, with feelings, with lies, with imagination. And in my understanding, that's what cinema is about. And uh, anyway, it, it, that's what is made, which is kind of a rare species, <laughs> but I'm satisfied. And, and it, it was very, very challenging. I, I said that this is the most challenging film that I have done, I will say substantially, conceptually, personally, and technically, in, in every level, in every level was that. And, and I'm, I'm very, very satisfied that I could have done it. I don't make my life easy, as you said, but I don't want to be trapped in this kind of concept of auteurs that in a way is scrutinized if they follow the same pattern and you have to be like, oh, this is a film about that. And you suddenly have a brand because that's dangerous. I want to get out of that. I don't want to be trapped in any level and any box. I would like to explore and keep growing and failing. <laughs> Actually, well, I, I can't wait to see what's next as always. And thank you so much for this. And we will close with student questions. Uh, but I, I want to thank you so much because this has been amazing. Thank you. Thank you. Scott. Thank, thank, you. thank you. Thank you. Okay. Hi, my name is Justin. Um, I'm a huge fan of your work. Uh, Amoris Peros is one of my favorite films ever. And I just want to ask you, what was that experience like tackling such like an ambitious and multi-layered story for your first feature film? And what lessons did you maybe take with you when making your newer stuff like Birdman and Revenant? Well, 
Well, I think that the idea behind uh, uh, Amores Perros was to kind of have a mosaic, you know, uh, a mosaic of the city that is is very complex to talk about Mexico and as a country, and and it's complex to talk about Mexico City itself because it's such a diverse city with so much, uh, um, uh, I will say, diversity and so so much energy and electricity that it was, uh, for me as a filmmaker, was how I can get that energy in the film, what how it can feel that you are smelling the, the air, the polluted air, those colors, those textures. I wanted to really explore um, uh, uh, reality. At that time, I was obsessed to be very, very exploring reality as much as I can to get as close to that. So that was kind of a, a director. And I learned from Amores Perros that something that paid off for me was to prepare the film e extremely well. So uh, since then, I have prepared a film, you know, relentlessly. I'm obsessed with... I always said that, you know, I do the films two years before. And when I'm shooting the film, I'm just executing the film that I have already done. You know, so I did that in Amores Perros. And I have done that in the whole other films. Hi there, my name is Chloe Bursell and I absolutely love The Revenant. And I wanted to know what inspired and motivated you to tell that story on cinema? Well, The Revenant was made, uh, uh, was uh, uh, a Michael Punke novel uh, that he did from this mythical, you know, Hugh Glass character. That the only thing that is known about him is that he was abandoned and then he was attacked by, you know, by Fitzgerald. So it's kind of a mythology thing that Michael did this and then Mark Smith did a first draft. And then uh, Mark and I work uh, uh, based on that novel, which in a way we had a lot of things about like, for example, to have like this, uh, the song, the mixed race songs that Hugh Glass have. That's something that we made of, you know, I, I wanted to explore racism and give a look about how really these guys arrived to a pristine nature, you know, uh, with natives and so much richness and they could not see nothing about it and how they just capitalize all that. And the fact that many of the trappers really get involved with these relations and they have skits and some of them stick to them and some of them were completely brutalized by the kind of prejudice at that time. So I wanted to explore the beginning of this kind of complicated thing that is still we are living. So I think the motivation was basically explore and for me was to be lost in nature and be transforming nature. And I was very naive, romantically thinking, oh, I'm going to go to nature and I will be transformed. And I suffer like a pig. <laughs> but it was a good intention, by the way. <laughs> Hello, um, my name is Lucas O'Brien, and um, I was just wondering, how do you find and collect like abstract ideas and then like translate them into a screenplay? That's a good question. I think it has to do a lot uh, that um, I think if you are clear in the concept, uh, uh, if you have a clear concept, I think that's kind of the soul of something. And that clarity of the concept that you would like to explore, uh, what I'm saying is, if you if you know what you want to say, that will be uh, the the light that will guide you during all the way that is going to be darkness. Meaning, for example, in 
in, 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 in Birdman, I knew what I want to say. I knew what I wanted to explore, but I didn't know how to do it. It took me uh, three years to really nail it. And how I think is just by expose, in a way, once you have a, co a concept open or a curiosity, again, let's do not uh, 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 subestimate your uh, subconscious. Once you give your subconscious an instruction, and it's not a rational thing, but you, if, if your subconscious is clear, it will be kind of, um, you know, absorbing everything that appears in your life will start to make sense and will be informing you about that thing. And you'll say, oh, that's strange. It's exactly what I was looking for. And suddenly you go to a library and you see a book and said, oh, my God. It's exactly the theme. And then you see a film and suddenly it has to do with something that informs you about that. And then in a dinner, a person sits beside you and suddenly they, he starts talking. About, and that, that has been completely clear for me, that once your subconscious is informed, he's the master. And you obviously, you will have to rationally to be curious about things or you will go to the galley. But then you will be kind of impregnated by that naturally. And all the things you have to stick all the pieces together and start relating one to the other. And you will start developing the story, obviously, at the same time. But you understand what I'm saying? Like, is there, there's a rational path, which is a lot of work, a lot of work. You have to sit every day in a blank page and put your ass four hours. And sometimes you will not have one word. And sometimes you will have three pages that you will be proud. And 10 days later, you will say it's a piece of shit. And then you will start over again. You know what I mean? And then that's definitely the only way, right? That's the hard work physically, rationally. But I think the most important thing, that's not the most important. If, if that will be the case, then all the hard worker guys will be genius. No, I think the thing is the subconscious thing, the one that is not in your kind of rational spectrum is the one that if you are clear that it will be guiding you very deeply and much more profoundly than you think, you know? Uh, my name is Christopher. I absolutely love your movie. I just wanted to preface by saying that. Uh, throughout the film, we can see the very prevalent style of magical re realism play out. And I just wanted to know that, um, is that sort of magical realism style something that you procured through, uh, you know, your Mexican heritage? Because it, magical realism is very prevalent through Hispanic culture. Or is it something you found through external sources such as Gabriel, Mar Gabriel Garcia Marquez, for example? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, I think this film is not necessarily magical realism, even when I understand what you're saying, it can be easily kind of confused that I think, uh, 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 I think life is more magic than real in a way. Magical realism is always uh, has been kind of a way to express things that are obviously supernatural. And there's a metaphor about it. And it's a much more playful way to tell a story with supernatural element that inform uh, other things. But I think in this case, more than anything, you know, it's hard to describe for me who I am to describe what I did, but I think this is much more, I was trying to must attempt to go into the subconscious mind, more in the Jung tradition, you know, <laughs> of Freud, or a kind of a metaphysical state. It's kind of a mental landscape. That's how I will define this, because this is the way, if you observe your mind and your thoughts, it works this way. It goes back in your memories. Suddenly, two minutes later, you are afraid of your exams next week. Suddenly, your mom called and said that, da, 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 and then you're... What I'm saying, we are kind of building this kind of very kind of complicated thing that we then hold into one narrative. But I was trying to get this, 
a, a mental landscape built of all these elusive things that is not necessarily magical realism. I think this is very real. This is not magic. This is the way... And obviously, we have to understand that this film is told by a guy at the end of his life trying to get, really get everything and absorb everything where all the questions are open and nothing has an answer. So in the light of this perspective, and a story that is, is, this is a story without story, but that that is told by the end point. So in a way, I think all these kind of flashes that happen, uh, not intend to be magical realism. I think it's tried to be very, very real <laughs> in that sense. Hi, my name is Giovanna Meave. Something I noticed in Bardo is the idea of creating media as a Mexican, showcasing the country and culture, but dealing with the concept that it appeals to Americans yet betrays the Latino audience. So I wanted to know, is this an issue you've struggled with or have encountered in the industry? There's no side to be played. Well, I, at least my attempt was exactly being between. I mean, there's some lines that that Silverio said uh, that when 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 some that the, the wife Lucia said to him, when somebody uh, uh, criticizes Mexico, you 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 kill him, right? That Mexico. So we become when we are outside of Mexico, Mexicans become very Mexicans. We are the most Mexican guy is the one who has left the country, right? And somebody said something wrong about us and. Ah, but suddenly, if we suddenly go and be very honest about what's going on in our country, the corruption, the immunity, the 120 people disappearing as, as that scene talk about it, not with that literal violent thing that we are used to, but in a way, we can be very critical of ourselves. And I try to navigate exactly where I feel sometimes, that I am navigating all the time in Bardo, in that place in between, that it depends on how we feel that day or if we have chilaquiles in the morning, we can be a little bit more harsh with the country that we are in. And sometimes I like the contradictions between the relation of Mexicans and Americans. You know, our countries are so different and they are so attached together. And that relation is not easy. There is no easy answers. And I try to navigate making fun about the absurdity of that reality between that invasion of the United States taking half of the country for 15 million pesos, right? And this guy not being let in by uh, 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 a Mexican uh, uh, guy that, you know, by paper is denying home with an Asian woman and the three of them talking about nationality and none of them are American. And that's the ridiculous that we are now, right? So a, a paper... And so anyway, I was trying to navigate in the absurd reality that there is no like, oh, I'm, I'm serving my country or I'm criticizing the gringos. No, I was trying to navigate that we are exactly all the time, everything, all the time. There's a line of Orson Welles that I like that he said, everything that has been said about me at some point it's right. <laughs> when I'm saying yes, on Tuesday you were an asshole. Yes, I was probably an asshole. But Saturday you were a mediocre. Of course I was a mediocre. On Sunday that, that you were genius. Yes, maybe I was a genius. You know what I mean? So we are not like one side or the other. We are all the time many things and depending in things. So that's what I was trying to get to this point. Hey, Alejandro, um, I'm curious about artistic sensitivity. And I was wondering if you think it's... Uh, sort of like a gift, un, un don, uh, that I'm forgetting the word in English, or do you think it's something to be sought after, something that can be developed? No, I think that uh, artistic sensitivity, uh, as it has been said many times, is true. It's a, it's a thing that you have to born with. Also, I mean, you, 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 it's something that you don't, 
what I'm saying is you don't learn. So yes, you will learn to do films. The craft of filmmaking is something that you can learn here or sometimes in YouTube or as me, you can be autodidacts and you can learn with practice, right? The craft, the, the physical things. But what you have to say is something that you need to bring with you, right? So, I mean, the sensitivity and, and the things that you would like to say and the need, I will say, the need to express yourself is something that not everybody has. It. There's people that live very nicely without expressing or needed to express something or they found their own medium to, to express things. But I think that need is crucial. So for me, the need to express and what is what you wanted and need to express I think that is what I think is something that you born with or you come with. And then that's, as they said, 1%. 99% is super hard work. <laughs> so, I mean, how many people you have met that are kind of great, sensitive people, smart, sensitive. And you said, why you don't write the book? Why you don't make a movie? Why you don't do, you know? And honestly, the need, and the hard work, that's, I think, the, the, the border. You know what I mean? I think that's where you have, there is no easy way. And you have to be ready to really go through a very, very, very challenging hard work. Uh, and having that two things, I think, will make your life at least easier in a way that you will be clear in why you do what you have to do. You know? Hola, Alejandro. Gracias por venir. Um, Gracias, Miguel. <laughs> um, so a professor once told me that uh, the music and the sound design is the six is the invisible sixty percent of a film, and obviously all your films uh, contain this great element uh, among many others. But in this case, Bardo, you were credited as the music composer. So I just wanted to know what was your uh, process of making the music. Uh, as it turned out pretty great. Thank you, Miguel. Basically, I, I always been obsessed with audio by the reasons that we talk because I think that audio, in a way, it's a it's a primal uh, thing. It's it, the frequencies are basically raw and they hit our ears and our body, and differently that images that is they are images that go into our brain and then we have to intellectualize them and rationalize them and put together because they are fragmented images. And we have to make the whole thing in our brain. And that's why some people love one film and then other one hate it. Why? Because obviously our brain processing depends in our system of values, in our culture, in our sensitivity, in how much we have breakfast that morning. What I'm saying is that process of images is much more complex. Sound and music is primal, hits your body and the body does not lie. And there's no interpretation. It's just plain. It's pure. That's why music is the most beautiful thing that trigger our emotions and not only sad or bad. You know, it's so complex. And so I truly believe that that's why this medium is called audiovisual medium because audio is first because it's 70%, I think, at least. And the music in this case was very interesting because I knew since the beginning that I wanted to have Metals, trombone, tuba, trumpets, because it's something that I like a lot from Mexico, from the old towns of Oaxaca, where always I go to these towns in San Miguel de Allende and all these bands, which are ancestral with this Mexican music, 
they are always exquisitely out of tune. Always. And it's something that you cannot recreate. And this music, in a way, can be played in weddings and funerals. And has to do a lot with Jewish music, with Serbian music, with Italian music. It's, it's kind of the music of humanity, but the Mexican way to play is very profound and sad and funny and absurd. And I don't know, there's something very nice. So I need that. And I didn't know how to, where to work. And then there was this thing about my father actually was something that it was true. My father was a great whistler. And I do not remember that whistle that he used to sing. And it was making me feel so good. And nobody knows. And I'm so super desperate. So during the time of pre-production, because this film was three years in pre-production, we had to stop two times in, in, in pandemic. I was whistling possible melodies for it, you know, like, like just to find the tune of the song or the tune of the music will inform me the pace and the feeling of the music. So I was just whistling myself different tunes in my phone. And then I finally called to Bryce Desner, which I met him in, 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 in Revenant. He did the third act of Revenant, which is the guy from the Nationals, which I'm sure you know him very well. He's a genius. He wrote classical music with Steve Reich, with Tom York. With, you know, he's a guy that works in so many eclectic music. And I said, let's do it. Can you help me? And he said, yes. And I, so I explained the idea, I explained the concept, and I sent him my tunes. And I was a little embarrassed. <laughs> and he said, something like that. And he loved it. And he said, oh my God, this is great. Let's work on that. And I said, really? Okay. So we took the, the tunes and the melodies and then he started obviously putting together. He flew to LA, then we flew together to Mexico. We recorded with, uh, with the bands. And he didn't know all these secrets, I mean, this substance of the Mexican music and he couldn't believe how beautiful, and I will never forgot this image of all this humble uh, Oaxacan band, like 40 people. And there's, this, there's one guy that is called Faustino, which is a, a, a metal guy, that he, he is a son of the guy who was the maestro orchestra in a very humble town of Oaxaca. And when he was a kid, his father, sometimes there was the trumpet guy didn't come. or So he said, okay, son, take this. And he was playing the trumpet. Then he take the tuba. At 14 years old, he was kind of a genius. And then he's, he went to Mexico City. He studied thing. And now he's one of the top tuba and metal guys in the world with all the uh, uh, classical orchestra. But still, he lives still in Oaxaca and teach these humble kids to do that. So he brought this to the studio in Sony in Mexico. And, and Bryce didn't want to have all the guys, uh, they, uh, he want them to be as they do in Mexico, that they are walking and playing. So to have the movement, all of them has to put the, the, the party tours in the back of the other. So they put the party tours. So they were playing, going around, and Bryce there with his hair like that, like, and all these men going in circles, looking each other in the back, playing. It was a fantastic thing, and the feeling was so fulfilling that, anyway, I think was one of the most memorable experiences with working with Bryce and see how he do what he do is unbelievable. And it was a privilege for me to be part of that uh, experience, you know? So anyway, that's that's the thing. Well, Alejandro, on behalf of everyone uh, here, we want to thank you for coming up here, for being so generous with your memories, and for all this great work that we've been talking about. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much, guys. Thanks very much for tuning in to Awards Chatter. 
We really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. Until next time, thanks for joining us.